Rami's Aid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is former Major League Baseball player and now entrepreneur Kevin Euclid. Three time All Star in the Major Leagues, part of two World Series championships with the Boston Red Sox, now owner of the successful Loma Brewing Company, and let me be the first to announce on the Rami Zaid Show. He's also a future contestant of ABC's Dancing with the Stars. Okay, I lied a little bit about Dancing with the Stars, but I did tease Kevin a bit about his apparently amazing dancing capabilities. And I believe you listeners right now should start the campaign to get him on that show. (laughs) But on a serious note, Kevin is such a humble guy, a fantastic father, husband, and businessman. I love baseball so much. There's no doubt about it. But this conversation covers much more than baseball as we continually connect to his upbringing, his father, coffee, craft beer, and the parallels of baseball and entrepreneurship. Efficient and determined are two words that come up over and over throughout Kevin's life. We had a lot of fun on this podcast, and I hope you had just as much fun listening. That said, here's my conversation with Kevin Euclid. This episode is brought to you by Cleanse on the Go. As potential sponsors approached me to advertise on my podcast this past year, I made a conscious decision to only bring on sponsors I absolutely believe in, and Cleanse on the Go is just that. A cleanse for me had nothing to do with weight loss, although it does that as well if that's what you're looking for, but more of a mental reset. I love the two-day cleanse option they have, but you have the choice of either a one, two, or three-day option to cater to your needs and wants. The beauty of Cleanse on the Go is its mobility. As most of my loyal listeners know, I absolutely promote a healthy eating and exercise lifestyle, but I'm a single dad, two kids, working 24-7, so to say I'm a bit busy is a ludicrous understatement. Cleanse on the Go is super easy to use. They're just small packets you mix with water. These small packets can fit easily into purses or pockets and are great for travelers, busy lifestyles, or embarrassingly lazy lifestyles if that is you. As a listener to the Rami Zaid Show, you can get 17% off your order if you go to their website. It's simply cleanseonthego.com, one word. Pick the cleanse you want, and under discount code, just type in my first name, Rami, R-O-M-Y, and you'll receive 17% off. Do it. You'll love it. Now let's get back to the Rami Zaid Show. Kevin Euclid, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. How's it going, Rami? It's going good. Let me just start off by embarrassing you a little bit. I'm going to rattle off some of your accolades. Three-time All-Star, two-time World Series champion, Gold Glove Award, American League Hank Aaron Award. 2018, you got inducted to the Boston Red Sox Hall of Fame, and now a business owner of the Loma Brewing Company and Loma Coffee Company. But I have to tell you, the rumor on the street is that in addition to all of this, you're an excellent dancer and singer is what I've heard. <laughs> so I'm trying to start the campaign right now to get you on Dancing with the Stars, Kevin, but I heard you can bust a boo on the dance floor. Uh, my mom actually thinks I should <laughs> She thinks that I would win it. It's funny, Aaron Andrews is, uh, you know, I've known Aaron since her day of reporting uh, on ESPN, but she's also a, a friend of the family in a lot of ways. And uh, we joke around about that too. She says she can make it happen. I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for the glamour and glitz. I like to keep them <laughs> our mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, and weddings. The song I heard on the singing is the Humpty Dance, by the way. I heard that's your go to. Oh, yeah. So, my, uh, so everyone makes do the karaoke of the Humpty Dance. So that is a little digital underground, which is a the Bay Area group. I, no, I love it. You obviously, you like to rhyme. You like your beats funky, you're spunky, and you like your oatmeal lucky. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's oh, it's so <laughs> I love it, Kevin. So we, we have a ton to cover today, Kevin. And in regards to your life, baseball and entrepreneurship, I think there's 
hours and hours worth of material. But with each and every interview that I do, I like to ask entrepreneurs like yourself how you start your day. Some have set routines, some don't, some are in between. But for the listeners, Kevin, how do you start your day? Yeah, well, uh, I'm a father of three. So I have a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and wow, soon to be well, less than a month away from having a 15-year-old daughter. Some people go, oh, God, sorry about that. But uh, I'm pretty lucky. I got an amazing daughter. So she's a great teenager. So I'm very thankful for that. But I start my day uh, where I try to get up, beat them up, not in a way physically, but waking up, beat them up. So I try to get up right now and go out and get on the elliptical. That's my new routine as much as possible. I'm trying to force myself to work out a lot more. Age is definitely you know, creeping in. And every single year, I'm like, man, I, you got to gotta maintain, you got to do more. So I try to get an elliptical for 30 minutes, get a little sweat in, and then uh, it's time to make the Loma coffee. So uh, we, owning a coffee company is probably the greatest perk for the morning. So coffee beans, and I, I am like a huge coffee fan of third wave coffee. I've been addicted to the Chemex. And I just got for my birthday, this automatic drip machine from Chemex that's, I think it's called the Ottoman. I think, I don't know why it's called the Ottoman, but it does the drip for me, the water. So I don't now have to hand pour it. So I found a new invention for me and it actually keeps the, it's got a hot plate. So now I got the best routine ever where I can just grind it, put it on, then I can go shower. I could do whatever and the coffee stays hot. So uh, nice routine. My routine really is just get up, try to work out, get the coffee going and then try to make breakfast for the kids. And, uh, just try to prepare them to get ready for the day. Brush teeth, shower. I mean, it's not easy with boys. No, no. <laughs> no, it's, no, I have one of each. I get it. When you're doing the workout, Kevin, is it music? Is it my podcast? Is it, I'm kidding there. Is it baseball? I mean, what is there anything in your ear when you're doing that workout? You know, I try to get on Audible as much as possible. And I try to listen to some, you know, uh, there's a, business classes that I've, I've started to listen to on Audible that are pretty fun to listen to, economic stuff. I try my best. But, you know, the funny thing is, is I almost need to meditate before because I'll find myself listening to these business books. And then all of a sudden, like some like thing will trigger me to think about my business. <laughs> and then next thing you know, like five minutes, like there could be like three minutes that go by. And I'm like, oh, crap, I got to rewind. Because I have all these crazy thoughts of like the day and I'm like, okay, focus, Kevin, focus. <laughs> it makes the workout go. That's good. Yeah, it's great. One other cool thing, uh, Eric Burns has this uh, no filter network. He does like a morning workout at 6 a.m. with a, a few dudes that I got on that and it's like an hour long. And next thing you know, you're like 50 minutes into like doing cardio, talking, engaging, which I thought was really cool. I thought that was a really good way of doing it. So I've done that, which I found success. But yeah, the Audible books for me are really crucial just to get on the tre- like get on the elliptical and do all that because reading a book for me is really tough. I almost pass out every time I start reading. Yeah. In the morning, I got a chance. If it's at night, it's bedtime. I have to listen to them too. I can't, I can't sit there and read because I'll, I'll pass out. Is there one you're into right now, a business book? Uh, so I just read Crucial Conversations, which is a great book. Man. I should have had that book about 20 years ago. Uh, just, I mean, I'm reading stuff and like, I'm like guilty, guilty, guilty. <laughs> you know, after you read it, you're like, oh my God, I'm a horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not when you think about, oh my God, when I was saying this, that was the reaction. That's how these people were soaking in. It's like, I think that one, I mean, Crucial Conversations, that's business, that's life, that's everything in that book. That's a great one. Yeah, uh, it applies to everything in life. It applies to your business world, coaching, like little league and stuff like that. I think that's a huge, uh, you know, crucial conversations might be the best thing for parents that have kids in little league or youth sports to learn how to speak to your child after in the car ride or understand or talk to them. Because I found a few things in there that I do actually pretty well on that side. But there's other parts of my life that I do very, very poorly that I have to build upon. But whether it be a relationship with my wife or my kids or youth sports or business, it applies to it all. So it's a really, really good book out there for everybody to have. Yeah, I agree. So I've had the pleasure to get to know you and your family on a personal level over the years, Kevin. But I'll tell you, just in doing the homework for this show, in my opinion, the overall theme of your life can be summed up in two words, and it's efficiency and determination. 
over and over in your baseball career, scouts and coaches would question your build and athletic ability, but over and over, you prove them wrong. And I found a quote, Jackie McMullen in the Boston Globe, this was years ago, says, he does not look like an MVP candidate, more like a refrigerator repairman, a butcher, the man selling hammers behind the counter at the True Value hardware store. So, you know, I know, ridiculous. I'd like you to start with high school and maybe even college. And can you tell the listeners how these critics, that was one quote, I'm sure you've heard others, but how that drove you or I guess heightened your determination in baseball? Yeah, there was a, yeah, that's one quote. I mean, the funny thing is, is you can find a lot of different quotes and, you know, looking back, it did a lot of good. It did a lot of bad. And I say that because it gave me a chip on my shoulder. It, it, when people told me I couldn't be this or I couldn't be that, they put me in a box and they labeled me. And I think that's one of the biggest missteps that a lot of uh, scouts in the, in the past used to do is they used to put people in boxes and says, oh, well, you can't do this because a certain player that we had matches that and he never did it. So we're not going to go with that. And uh, the odd thing about it was – you know, you go back and look at baseball, there's so many guys that come in many different shapes and sizes, whether it be height, weight, build, uh, the way they go about it. And uh, it never really made sense to me. But for me, I think the hardships were that I bought into what people were saying. I would listen to the critics. I would listen to, you can't do this. So what happened was psychologically, I would always have to try to prove myself. And sometimes it would come off the wrong way to some people because I felt like I had to tell them more about like, oh, well, no, I can do, you know, and it wasn't even just in baseball. It was just life and other, you know, different things. So for me, I I knew I could play baseball because I love baseball and I had success. Like if you look at my college career, I was, I was like a 499 on base percentage, you know, and, and most people go, well, oh, automatically he's getting drafted. Well, my junior year came around, Michael Vick got drafted, didn't play baseball since junior high. And next thing you know, I'm watching this thing or, well, You couldn't watch it back then, but I was so butthurt and I was like, well, why are these guys getting drafted? But I just kept the mind and focus on what can I control? And I just was so hard about going about it daily that I didn't think, you know, I had long-term dreams and long-term goals, but I would just go about my daily work that I, how do I get better? How do I improve today? And when things are going bad, like, how do I get out of this rut? And so I was so focused on the actual in-game prep, whether it be practice, whether it be BP, whether it be just studying the game and watching it intently. And so I just uh, kept my focus on that. And yeah, it was hard. It, It was really hard in a lot of ways, but it was the greatest lesson in my life because now I can teach something to my children is don't listen to what anyone else says, you know, well, you got to listen to coaches and all that, but <laughs> listen to what I say, but not what I right? <laughs> There's a lot of noise. There's going to be people that are going to tell you, you can't do something in life, but who are those people? Why are they telling you, you can't do something in life? Is it because they never did it or they didn't, you know, they tried to do it and they got rejected. So you gotta, you gotta figure out all these little things. And what I found were a lot of scouts never made it to the highest level. A lot of these people never played at the highest level. They're good at assessing, you know, talent in certain ways, but they weren't that great at what they're doing and they are judging you and assessing you. You can either just crumble when that happens, or you can show them that there is more in the, you know, more inside you than what they believe. Which I think, Kevin, is another reason you should go on Dancing with the Stars. I think you're made for the judges and uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But no, that's, you know, that's fantastic uh, advice, Kevin. I want to go back to the word efficiency and the book Moneyball, Michael Lewis's 2003 bestseller. You were still in the minor leagues, I believe, trying to make it to the majors when the book gave you some initial popularity. And another rude comment, the author called you a, a fat third baseman who couldn't run through or field, but he also gave you the moniker, Eucalyst, the Greek god of walks, because your ability to walk and get on base. And so I mentioned this because, you know, efficiency determination is going to come up over and over, but you were an incredible overall baseball player, Kevin, but the walk part of it was something that uh, people globbed onto. Maybe it was the book, but it obviously was your ability to get on base. Can you talk about, was this something that was just kind of you? Or was this something that you learned? Is it something that 
you said, I need to get efficient at X and this is how you did it. But what was with the, I guess, Greek God of Walks moniker, but really how did that come about in your head? I was in double A in Portland when this book came out and we were a new affiliate. So we moved from Trent, New Jersey to Portland, uh, Maine, which was like the biggest deal because now it went from being the Florida Marlins, which people in Maine don't really care about as much as the Red Sox. So it was a huge deal that the Red Sox were coming into town. And so we already had a lot of, you know, fan interaction. That was an excitement of young players now that we get to watch before they make it to the major league. So that attention was already there. But then this book came about and got huge raving reviews. And professors were, were putting this in uh, their classrooms and talking about it. And it was a really good thing for me to interact with media and understand how to maybe talk and understand how the media works in a lot of ways. And I got to understand that by giving interviews, then going back and reading it. And I'd be like, whoa, I don't think I said all that. So I had a little glimpse of that with the media. But it was also it, it was also a weird thing where everyone always just... There was, there was fans that were like... I remember I would be on deck and some fan would be like, come on, get a walk. And I'd be like, man, what the heck? Like, get a walk. Like, you want me to get a hit? Like, I'm going to get a hit. A walk is a byproduct of me being selective and getting my pitch to hit. This was something that was ingrained in me. As a highly competitive person, I don't like losing. And what I figured was, okay, if they're not going to pitch to me, I still can get on base. And then they got to pitch to one of my teammates. And if they don't pitch the next one, now we got first and second. Now we can get some runs. So it's kind of funny how it's very simplistic when you really think about it. But for some reason, it's broken down to be super complex of why don't you swing at pitches and why do you not swing at pitches and what? Well, what I found with hitters are everyone's unique and different. And some people just, you know, no more Garcia Parra. You throw the ball anywhere near the strike zone, he's going to swing and hit it. I didn't have that. I was very selective and wanted to get my pitches to hit until two strikes, work the count, see the ball a little bit more. I felt like more pitches allowed me to, I call it, it's, it's almost like a, your brain is like a computer system. The more spin you see, the more pitches you see, the more you know time you have to analyze and break down and really formulate where that pitch is where I need to hit it. Because you don't really see the ball the last six feet. You're guessing, right? So hitting is about guessing. You're picking a spot and you're swinging. So the more times you get to see that pitch, the more times you have a better chance of making a good, accurate prediction of where to put the bat on the ball. And so for me, that was a big part of how I got to where I was. My college coach talked about uh, percentages of guys throwing breaking balls for strikes and repeating pitches. And so I took a little bit of that advice and understood that, you know, at the college level, especially like they're just not as sharp. And for them to throw a really good slider or curveball in a non-hitters spot, whether it not be a hanging breaking ball, you understand that. When you see a hanging breaking ball, he always used to say is you react. And it's just an easy reaction because the ball is up there and it's, it's just easier to hit. The other ones, you know, why don't, why should you, why should you be swinging at those pitches with less than two strikes? Doesn't make much sense because if you're off balance or you're not on time, you need to take the pitch. So I kind of learned that along the way in college um, and just understood that they're going to pitch around you sometimes. And, Yes, you can go up there and try to swing just to put the ball in play and have your glory as an individual getting your hit or your RBI. But there's also the other part of it that if you're going and swinging at pitches that are less probable, you know, rates of success pitches, you're going to get out a lot. So I factored that in and just kept learning and learning and learning. And um, as time went on, it just kept going. And next thing you know, I, I had a very high on base percentage my first year of pro ball. And that's where that book kind of, you know, just I was second to Barry Bonds in all of professional baseball and on base percentage. I had 70 walks in my short season A ball. So it was crazy. But if you ever go see a short season A ball game, the ball is going around a little while. <laughs> so you have a lot of young Dominican guys that are like 18, 19 years old that haven't figured out. They're throwing hard, but they're nowhere near the plate. So I don't think it was me as much as sometimes what I was given. Well, I'll tell you what's you. This is a stat I pulled. I mean, you have many incredible ones, but this one, 100% of the 239 career bats where you faced a 3-0 pitch, which you swung at zero times, was a walk. You drew a walk 
100% of those times. It's an unbelievable stat on a 3-0 pitch. Like, I, I just think that's mind-boggling, Kevin. And I think also, you know, you mentioned something earlier about the media. And, uh, you know, one, one funny quote you said about the Greek god of walks moniker that was given to you. Uh, I heard you say it's better than being the Greek god of illegitimate children, uh, which is hilarious. But I, I bring up that moniker and the media in your head and you saying earlier, like you had to kind of deal with that. You know, going up to bat, there's at least, you know, in the very junior baseball I played, which is nowhere near what you did. But there's a lot of things going in your head. And is that tough. Like you're walking up to the plate, everyone's yelling, Hey, Kevin, get a walk. And you have to clear out all that stuff. I guess, number one, did you, and how did you do that? That's the fun part of baseball, right? Uh, the higher levels you move up, there's more noise. There's a lot more distractions. There's a lot more things that can divert your attention away from what you're trying to do. And one thing that I learned from veteran players or just along the journey through good coaches was just creating good habits. If you create a daily routine that is very focused, very driven, but also malleable, that you can move off of it and adjust. But if you set up those daily routines that you're showing up to the field at this time, you're going to the cage at this time, not only does that help you, it also helps your teammates. Because that's one of the biggest part of baseball is the cage is set up for a lot of players to go hit and a lot of time that's dedicated. So when you have your set routine of going at a certain time and another player has a set routine, Good teams have a bunch of players that know how to create routines and create a good atmosphere for work. And that was one big pet peeve of mine was when guys were not focused and would just show up to the cage whenever, young guys especially, we would have to get on them and be like, hey, listen, you got to be here first, right? Do not be here when Manny Ramirez is ready to hit. Like, do not do that. It Manny, this is Manny's cage at that time. He's earned the right. That's his time. Whenever he wants to show up, he can do it. You can't. You don't have that luxury yet. You know, when you sign that, you know, $160 million contract, you can show up and you can take over a cage whenever you want. Sure. <laughs> is it fair? Maybe not, but it's just how it works, right? And so for me, that's what, you know, I really learned just one, just formulate that routine, live it like every single day the best you can. But also know that sometimes you have to pull back or do more. So you got to figure that out based upon how you're feeling physically. And when it comes to the noise, I was my harshest critic, right? So it didn't matter if somebody told me I stunk. It didn't matter if somebody said, hey, get this, do that. Because I was more focused on – I had a plan. I would watch the pitcher before the game. I would watch his past performances. I would look at the statistical analysis of what pitches he threw. And I would already have all that information and a game plan before I got up to bat. And I would take that information and game plan into BP, thinking about today, what, what is this guy going to do? And what is my approach? And then everything came into play like during the game. When things are going bad, you're talking to yourself in ways that are just awful. You have the, the little man, we caught the little man on your shoulder that is telling you stuff. And next thing you know, you're like not even seeing the pitch. So when you're going great, that little man is nowhere near. He is far off in the distance. You're just going up there and you're going through it and you're just like, okay, here, you know, I take two swings. I step in with my right foot. I'm set. I'm ready to go. But when you're going bad, you have a lot of different thoughts. So what you have to do is calm yourself down, use the breath as much as you can. And when I say the habits, like, so when you go on deck and you're doing your routine on deck, and then the guy gets out and you have your routine walking up to the plate. And then when you go from there and you step into the box, if that routine always is the same routine over and over, your thoughts are always kind of the same. You kind of start doing things like all over the map, your thoughts change. So some guys are different. Some guys actually need to do <laughs> crazier things and pay attention. And other for me, I was more intent on timing up the pitcher, getting my foot ready on the fastball and just – figuring out how to adjust on the slider or curveball. So I watched every single pitch and I was timing up. I would even time up in the dugout. I'd watch the pitcher and I'd actually like have my hands and kind of act like I'm timing up. So, but the fans, like for me, there was nothing bad about, oh, there was fans that talked a lot of crap. I actually loved it. I loved it. <laughs> because look at the quotes. I mean, people sure. say stuff about me all the time. So as much as being sensitive to not liking what they say, there's one thing you can do to shut them up. And that's 
to, to have success. So my focus and intent was on having success to just shut up that fan. Well, and you definitely shut a lot of people up, Kevin, with your success. I want to talk about tipping points. I bring this up with a lot of guests on my shows because the listeners love hearing it. And past and present, millions and millions of little leaguers out there, uh, high schoolers, minor leaguers, have the dream of making the big leagues. And the latest statistic I heard is that 0.015% of high schoolers, I believe, make it to the big leagues, which is the same as the same exact percentage as a thief guessing your bank pin number on the first try. I mean, it's, it's that unbelievable. And I want to go back to May 14th, 2004, which I believe was your first day up in the bigs. Can you describe, number one, the night before that first day and then the day of your first game in the bigs, hitting that dream? Uh, yeah. So, wow. I was in Charlotte. Yeah, I was, on, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina in AAA. And I got a phone call from our manager asking if I had my passport. And luckily I did because I went on this Red Sox cruise that off season and I, I had a passport. And he said, hey, well, you're going to the big leagues. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I literally jumped off the phone. I was going nuts. I called my mom and dad. I told them I was getting called up. And then next thing you know, I'm in a panic, you know, calling my agent. And I had to go to the field, get my equipment, go to the airport, jump on a plane, get to Toronto, you know, go through the customs, get to the hotel, and the game was going on. So I didn't really know what was really happening. And next thing, and they kind of told me like, hey, listen, Bill Miller has bad knee and they're trying to decide if he's going to get surgery or not. And so that night, the game is over. I'm still in my hotel room. I've, I've made, I, I mean, I don't even know if I made any calls because I didn't have any money at that time. Toronto, you don't want to <laughs> use your phone too much. I just remember Terry Francona called me and he's like, Hey, you, you're, you're going to be starting at third base tomorrow. And I like literally was like, Phew. I mean, now my adrenaline is even higher and so excited and so pumped. Luckily, my parents got to get a flight from uh, Cincinnati to Toronto the next day to come witness, but I didn't get much sleep. I think I might have slept three and a half, four hours. Uh, I was just on cloud nine. Show up to the field. I remember I don't know where I'm going jumped on the early bus and next thing you know, like go in the locker room, following all the coaches and guys. And I see the number 20 with Euclid on the back. And I was just in heaven because I was a uh, offensive tackle in spring training, a middle linebacker in, in numbers. Next thing you know, I got like a real number and I had no care in the world what number it was, but number 20 was there. And I kept that number still to this day and still hold it near and dear to my heart. Uh, because that was the first, uh, you know, number that our clubhouse manager, Joe Cochran, gave me. And, uh, you know, that game was unbelievable. My first at-bat, there was a 2-1 pitch, a changeup from Pat Hankin, uh, Cy Young Award winner, and I popped it up. I mean, I just skied it straight up, just missed it. And I literally was like running as fast as I can, thinking, oh, it might hit the roof. But little did I know how high that roof was. <laughs> you know, there's a... Uh, there was a little too much adrenaline in that one, but then luckily in that, then the second at bat, I got the same pitch two one, and uh, I got on top of it and uh, a little bit more, and, and put it in the, uh, the outfield bleachers for a home run for my first hit and first home run in the major leagues, and I think I ran around the bases in about a four four. So uh, <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, I got the silent uh, in the dugout, and yeah, the infamous uh, fake high fives, and you know that was looking at my career and not knowing where it would go, that was, my career was over after that. I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. I'm good. This is, you know, I, I achieved everything I wanted to do, but you know, knowing my mentality, I, I still wanted more. Sure. No. And I, and I believe that you were the seventh Red Sox ever in history to hit a home run in your first game. Oh, which wow. is amazing. Yeah, you didn't know that one. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot of stats out there that I don't know about myself. People mention them here and there, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, seventh Red Sox ever to do that in the first game. And the Red Sox have been around a while, Kevin, so that's pretty impressive. You mentioned your your parents in the stands for that first game. And if you don't mind me bringing up, Kevin, your father. Last July, I think he passed away. And you and I are both fathers. Our kids are fantastic. And I, I think you'll agree that there's really no better responsibility in life than being a dad. And with 
you know, baseball underway. Opening day is upon us. I heard last July you said on the Pat McAfee show right after uh, your father did pass away, talking about him taking you to the Cincinnati Reds games. Opening day and the, the greatest pride of your father was seeing your name on the back of a jersey, that Eucalyptus name, which I think is super cool. But if you don't mind, Kevin, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your father and what he meant to you and how he influenced you in, in not only baseball, but business and, and fatherhood? Yeah, my dad was probably the, the biggest influence in my life in a lot of ways. He was probably one of the best looking human beings I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> yeah, I joke around. We looked, we looked dead on each other. My older relatives used to grab my cheek like when I was younger and say, you look so much like your father. They always like, you know, and so when I was young, I hated it. But as I got older, I realized it was, it was such a, it was an honor. Uh, my dad was an unbelievable human being. He loved people. He loved work. He loved connecting with people. That was his thing. Uh, his passion was being around people. He was in the diamond business and everyone he would, you know, uh, John Lester would always like even get like, you know, stuff for his wife and other and Bronson Arroyo and all these other baseball players would go to my dad for jewelry. And it was such a cool connection. You know, my dad always used to joke around. You say, oh, you're networking, Kevin. You're not, I'm like, dad, I'm playing baseball. Like we used to not, like I'm not networking. But now I realize the whole time I was networking. Right. And there were so many things my dad taught me about life and hard work and passion. And but the passion for baseball, he was a card collector. He had like every top set from. I forget what era, maybe the 40s or 50s. He loved card collecting. He just loved baseball. He played fast pitch softball at the JCC. But he influenced me just to have a passion for the game. You know, opening day was always one of the greatest days where we get to skip school and he would take us down, uh, you know, to the Reds games. And I don't know, you know, looking back what my dad could or could not afford, but we got he worked with somebody on getting half the Reds game tickets and we would go down and watch the Reds. But I don't know if I would have had the career I had if I didn't have a dad that really did things like that. My dad built a batting cage in our backyard with his bare hands with wood and mulch and did all these really cool things. But, you know, his influence was about work ethic. He was a workaholic. He loved his work. He didn't really mo like, you know, there was moaning and groaning about things at work, of course, at the dinner table and stuff like that. Like every, you know, probably every household hears in some way, um, but they weren't like super complaints. There were just things that were going on that were just, you know, problems. But my dad was, he loved it. He loved just every part of work and he was going to work till the day he died and he fulfilled that. And that's something that my, that I hope to carry on a legacy of, I always joke around. There's a lot of things that my dad was better at. As he got older, I joke around that my wife, my wife's like, he never would yell or raise his voice. Or he's like, no way. I don't believe you. And I'm like, yeah, I used to get on this pretty hard and whatever. And I used to get spanked and stuff like that. But I probably deserved every single, I, I probably <laughs> way more spankings looking back. But he was a very influential man and guided me along the way. And probably the thing I miss most about my dad is having talks about business. So anytime something came up with Loma, I would always bring it to him, talk to him about it. And uh, he loved it. He loved every part of it. He would mention things. And I'd be like, well, Dad, you know, it just doesn't work that way. But that's every uh, father and son's uh, relationship when it comes to business. You know, you're not going to always agree. But in the end of the conversation, you're going to come out with some uh, some sort of guidance uh, that could help you. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing, Kevin. I had the honor of meeting him a few years ago, and he was a very special man. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think um, the listeners will love to love to hear that. On the tone of business, last baseball question here is World Series. That, in essence, is the pinnacle of that business. Uh, and you were part of two World Series championships with the Red Sox. And, you know, I think we could talk about, you know, every single game ad nauseum and have a blast with it. But I think the question I have for you is, what was that feeling like? We just talked about, you know, your first day in the bigs hitting that home run in your second at bat. And then you fast forward, or we are fast forwarding on this uh, podcast to winning a World Series championship. Can you describe what that's like? Well, it's, uh, it's hard to explain in words, right? I mean, the, uh, the amount of energy and time it takes from, the, from when you start working out in the offseason and uh, you start uh, moving into – you know, spring training and, and spring training is long and tedious. And then you get into the season and then 
you know, when you talk about how you're going to move forward and your goals to win a World Series, it seems so distant because the season seems so long. But the feeling of winning a World Series is, I mean, there's also the feeling of losing, right? So, like, we, we lost in the ALCS in Game 7 one time to Naco, and that was, like, that was one of the most emotional days, like, because it's such a gut punch. And uh, But winning it is just looking around a room of guys that you started something at the beginning of the year. Some guys, some guys moved on. Some guys got hurt. Some guys, other guys we brought in to help out. And you sit around that room, and it's just like all the weight of all the all the energy, the time, the sacrifice you make, it just you just want to sit back and and just you know we partied it up and all that. But you look around the room and everyone is getting along, regardless of all the incidents that hurt, happened all year. Guys not getting along, you know there are these little scuffles that occur, whether it be words or you know every once in a while a little scrap <laughs> that happens where you have to separate people. But it's just the camaraderie and bond of individuals coming together and achieving their goal. And there's no greater feeling. And that's why we celebrate as much as we do because it's so hard to win and to be a winning team, let alone get all the way to the last game and finish it up. And I think that was one of the things that resonates the most is the adrenaline rush of knowing that there's no more baseball to be played and you're the last team out there. And I'll tell you, I mean, the parade – is at, the parades are absolutely amazing. That first one in 04, I mean, ooh, that was a rough one. I mean, I, I mean, we were hurt the next day for sure after that one. We went around the whole entire city, the whole the whole city coming out, and I've never seen anything like that in my life and never will. And then we went into the water and the Charles, and everyone's going around the bridges. And, I mean, it was just, it was the most euphoric time of your life. You're young, and you're on top of the world. Yeah, let, let alone the city of Boston, right, that deserved all the World Series. When you guys were bringing this home, the baseball fans out there, which you can attest to, are absolutely amazing. Yeah, they love their baseball. You know, Red Sox is – it's it's get, it's passed on at birth. Like, it's not like – you don't get to choose. Like, I mean, these fans are – I mean, it is like – you don't know what family you're born into in New England, too. Like, you, you better hope you're in that right family, like, where is that like, – <laughs> Dad is not going to be in a good mood on a Saturday, like or Sunday, because you know the Red Sox just lost the series. Like you, hopefully, you get into that, you know, uh, family that the dad's, you know, pretty cool. I do joke around a lot. I'm like, it's tough being a dog in Red Sox Nation, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> hopefully, that's true. But uh, the fans are passionate. They love the game. They talk about the game. It's always on the radio. People are, you know, always commenting, and it's different. Like football. You play on Sunday, they talk for a week. You know, baseball is, they're talking all day up until that next pitch is thrown, that first pitch, 705. And that's just the beauty of uh, being in Boston. It's not easy. You're under the spotlight all the time. I didn't enjoy the spotlight off the field. I love the spotlight on the field. I really love the energy, the passion of the fans. Because like I said before, I was my biggest critic. So when I stink and I'm going through a slump, of course the fans know. Of course the fans want me to do good. If they're upset, they're upset. But there was no one more upset than me. So I actually – it didn't phase me a lot with Red Sox Nation, like being tough, because I was tough on myself. So as long as you're really, really accountable for when you screw up and you admit to it and you say it, those fans will love you until the day you take off that jersey. And I, I'm super appreciative to all those fans. There was a time where I was a little, you know, the ending there and getting traded and people talking pretty negative about me. That was that was tough to hear. But uh, now that I'm 42 years old and more mature and, and past it, it doesn't hurt as much. And I think that's the, the key to it all is Red Sox Nation is a very special group of people and they really, really like care about accountability. So if you're accountable, you can play in Boston. If you're not a, if you're not a person that can deal with being held accountable by fans, it's going to be a tough, tough place to play. Right. I could talk baseball with you the entire day, Kevin. And I do want to mention your last Major League Baseball appearance was in 2013 with the Yankees. I know you played uh, another year overseas after that. But August 2016, you and your brother Scott started the Loma Brewing Company, which has now expanded into both the Loma Brewing Company as well as the coffee company that you mentioned earlier. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about 
Loma Brew, how this came together uh, with you and your brother. Yeah. So while I was playing, I got, fell in love with craft beer. Uh, I did charitable. Uh, we had a Ukes Kids charity up in uh, Boston that we did a couple events at Harpoon Brewing Company. So I got to be friends with Dan Canary of Harpoon. And there was a liquor store uh, by me called Marty's that had a huge craft beer selection. And through um, going to that store, I learned a lot about craft beer. And I learned about craft beer from all over the country. And so then I would go into Marty's, talk to a couple of the guys there. And they're always really excited that I would come in and, and, and talk about beer. And next thing you know, I just kept trying different styles. I was like, ooh, that's not, that's not what I like. This is what I like. And found my niche of kind of beer selections that were enjoyable and, and fit my palate. And so what I did was everywhere around the country, I would try to go visit breweries. Uh, you know, Kansas City was great because Boulevard Brewing Company was a big brewery out there. And we got to have those in the clubhouse, whereas most clubhouses only had the domestic beers of Miller, Bud, or Coors. So it was always exciting to be in Kansas City and they had Boulevard on, that's a Boulevard beer for us. But I just fell in love with the, the craft beer world. I went to a Great American Beer Fest for my first time and I saw the camaraderie of breweries and the passion for beer and just how breweries are kind of competing, but they're not. They're kind of just trying to make great beer and enjoy it with the whole entire craft beer community. And so I love that part of it. I said, someday I won't be a part of a team. And now I want to be part of a team, an industry that really brings upon camaraderie and just a lot of fun. And it's a little more laid back. I'm not a suit and tie type of guy. I joke around uh, about I don't wear ties because after doing jujitsu, I know that a tie is your worst enemy. If anything was to happen, <laughs> but my other excuse for not wearing a tie is once I put on a tie, I'm a sweater already and I start sweating because that thing around my neck is done. But that's kind of like how I got into craft beer was I just really enjoyed it. I was very fortunate to make great money in baseball that afforded me the luxury where I didn't have to work necessarily again. But it's just not my DNA. Like I said about my dad, we're, we like to work. And so I wanted to find something to do that was fun, that was intriguing. And something I could do for the rest of my life if that's what I chose. And so I had my brother and I just, you know, my brother was in the restaurant industry and I got advice that if you have a brew pub, which serves food and has the beer, that you have the best chance of bringing people in to your place. So I teamed up with my brother because he knew food. I knew a little bit about craft beer. And so we, we started looking around the Bay Area and the South Bay because there wasn't a lot of craft beer places down here. And we got lucky that the Los Gatos Brewing Company was looking to move on. And we took over this space and remodeled it. And uh, yeah, it's like almost five years now this August that we've been we've been rocking here in the town. And man, it's been a lot of ups and downs, but we're excited for our future. There's a lot of things brewing here. Yeah, this pun is intended. No pun. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, we're brewing up things here and we're really excited about our future. It's going to be... A, a fun time because we're, we're growing and expanding. A Kevin Euclid's quote I have here, the only way to succeed in life is to have a passion for something and work more efficiently than the rest. There's that word again. A lot of people work hard, but don't know how to work efficiently. So we talked a little bit about baseball, obviously, and how you, in your head, body and skills made yourself more efficient. Now that you're an entrepreneur, how do you do the same in business and or are you learning to do the same in business? Yeah, I'm learning every day. I mean, honestly, I have so much room to grow as an owner and operator. That's where like that Crucial Conversation book is huge on how to, you know, talk directly to individuals, how to how to have those tough conversations, how to build the team up when you need to build the team up. And I think for me, you know, there's so much more room to grow in this industry and learn. And I have, I've learned how to be more efficient with my workers' time. I think that's the key. Is you know, individually, you can only you have to apply things individually. And I and I say this in sports as much as business is, you have to make sure everyone is doing what they can control and do to the best of their ability. They might do it a different way, as long as it the end goal is met, that's all that matters. So micromanaging the way they do it versus the end goal of how, did they get the job done that was needed and was uh, put on paper that, hey, so-and-so is doing this, so-and-so is doing that. And I've learned that 
when you try to overmanage, it becomes less efficient. When you allow people to be empowered, to grow, to to do it on their own and figure out ways to to get them down the right paths, then everyone is working together more efficiently. I think that is where the efficiency comes. It's not that you're making a beer now in 10 days versus 14 days. It could be the case, but that's the beauty of beer too is you you if you try to be too efficient and get that beer out, it might not reach its full quality and potential. So, efficiency a lot of it has to do primarily right now in my world is making sure people are sticking to the task they're doing and putting people in the right place to succeed. We are now 12 months into COVID, which is obviously not something anyone anticipated, let alone you're opening up you know, a new brew pub, it's a passion, and all of a sudden you get hit with this pandemic. As a businessman, what was that like? And how did you, how did you pivot out of that? Well, you know, the first gosh, six months was just anger. It was just so angry. Like the politics were angry. Like everything, like it was just so heartbreaking in the beginning because you could see the writing on the wall that small businesses in California, specifically in Santa Clara County were, were being judged differently. And the rules and restrictions that were put upon us were just so harsh. And, you know, trying to deal with that while also making sure to maintain safety, that was the key. You know, trying to make sure that all of our staff members were healthy, were not put in bad positions. And we were very lucky. Like, we didn't have a COVID issue here. Our workers, you know, we, we didn't have COVID that like one worker got and spread it through. You know, we never had it. So it actually, looking back, it's amazing in the 12 months that we didn't have that issue occur. A lot of restaurants did. And, you know, if it did come about or still comes about, we'll shut down and do what we have to do to make sure everything's okay. But, you know, we got very lucky with that. But being a business owner during this time, especially a small business owner in where we are and going to other places like Florida during the pandemic, uh, you saw different things. And, and it was just heartbreaking as a business owner to go through it. But I'm very lucky to have a great staff here that were determined to work here, get things out to the people. And I mean, I don't know how many people we've had walk through these doors that have thanked us repeatedly for providing an amazing space and an opportunity to feel alive again. I think a lot of people were so heartbroken mentally, having to stay at home and not being able to eat outside. And we were very fortunate that the town of Los Gatos allowed us to shut down Gray's Lane and provide an area for people to come and, and enjoy our food and drink. And uh, we, we saw beer sales go from 25 to anywhere from 25 to 30% of total sales to now like 45% of total sales, which is really, really cool. And we're seeing a different kind of demographic come around too. So, you know, the beginning part of COVID is nowhere what I am now. I'm very happy that we're moving through all this and everything's onward, right? You know, the past is the past and you got to get rid of it and you got to move onward because we have to learn from the past but we got to keep moving forward in life. And so we're really excited about moving forward. And uh, yeah, it's been a hell of a year. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. With the entrepreneur hat on, Kevin, and you saying moving forward, what does the future look like for Loma? Well, right now we're working on um, uh, securing a deal for a production brewery. We're looking in the Central Valley area right now. We feel that it's very hard to operate and own a business within the Bay Area that is kind of like industrial per se. I mean, a brewery is more industrial and needs to be in industrial spaces. But we also feel that going to the Central Valley allows our, our workers to live. You know, there's different ways that they can afford to live out in the Central Valley versus living here in the Bay Area. Uh, we still will have Loma Brewing Los Gatos, but the whole idea is to have a production brewery that can produce greater volume, that allows us to have better profit margins, that also allows us to get our distribution going where we can get our beers into other markets. Right now, we can only really serve beer out of the taps. We're very lucky to have... We're at capacity, which means we have a very good group of patrons that frequents here a lot and buys our beer. But on the same note, we need to grow the business because to fit the demand. And so this will allow us to grow the brand from the amount of volume that we can produce and put out into the market, but also to grow the brand in a way that helps our employees grow. 
And I think that's one of the big things that a lot of people don't understand here. Well, I think there are a lot of people that understand it, but there's a lot of people that work in tech and uh, might be private capital that don't understand the small business side of things as much. There's a lot of hardships going on right now here in the Bay Area. And I think the Central Valley is going to boom because of it in the next five years. So almost five years into Loma, what would you tell your five-year-ago self, if anything, about what you're getting into in the, the brewing business? I would have told myself to definitely uh, start, a, start a brewery in the Central Valley. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a room in Los Gatos rather than... Uh, but, you know, that's the thing is you learn. I mean, we've, you know, if, if we never would have done this, we never would have learned a lot of hard lessons. And sometimes that's the best part about business is if you can stay afloat, you know, if you like breaking even, you know, getting to that point, if you can stay there and then figure out how to stop breaking even and, and growing and expanding, there's a lot of lessons to be learned and you just got to keep moving forward. I think that's the key to it all is you can't be stale. You can't keep doing the same old thing. You got to figure out where the market's going, how the trends are going, and basically apply. You don't want to get fully off of what makes you who you are, but how you do little things that kind of move forward and move the needle to help you gain in the end. Yeah. Kevin, thanks so much for sharing. And I think that the baseball to business similarities are really valuable for for the listeners. And I know that you know, we'll get lots of good feedback from this conversation. I'd like to end most of my shows with like some fun rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. All right. And the first one is I'm going to take out baseball. I'm going to take out brewery and I'll take out singing and dancing since I teased you earlier. But if you could choose a completely different position slash profession, what would it be and why? Male model. <laughs> just neck down that's all you need right People always say i have a radio face but you know i have a tv body that's why <laughs> there was one uh i think i read a quote terry francona said he, oh, yeah. he's like i've seen eucalyptus in the shower he's not the greek god of anything <laughs> that was a quote and tito got in trouble for that from some teammates some teammates did he teammates were not happy with that uh, my mom was not happy with that she she wasn't really happy with that i just was like uh, whatever. It's not, the worst sure it it's not the worst thing in the locker room, but uh, no, oh, I love that it. was just Tito just being Tito, having fun with it. <laughs> you know, honestly, if I, you know, I was a finance major in college, I think I would have gotten in private capital. Yeah. I, I definitely think like venture capitalism type thing. I, I love the entrepreneurial spirit and like, just, I think doing something in that realm would probably have been right up my alley, being excited to like partner with, uh, you know, different companies and trying to grow them and expand them. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're, you're, you're living right in the Mecca of it too. So just to kind of see and feel and hear, uh, you know, what's going around just in Silicon Valley is ridiculous. Good, good answer. So next one, I'm a quote geek. I love quotes and, you know, getting ready for this show. I was just flooded with all these, you know, ridiculous Yogi Berra quotes, but I want to ask you, is there a quote, Kevin, or quotes that you take with you on maybe on a daily basis or there's one that's just top of mind right now? Uh, no, I mean, I always probably screw up a quote, you know, I'll have a quote and I have to go and Google it to make sure it's accurate. I usually have the gist of it, but I usually probably screw it up in some way. You know, my dad always gave a quote that says, you know, life's like a throw to first base, aim high. You know, I think that quote from my dad, it, you know, I've, I've always kept as something that I believe in and, and use in life because, you know, why not? You know, why set the bar so low? You know, you can achieve so much in life, but once you achieve it, keep aiming higher. Like, you know, there's always something more, right, that you can do in a sense of, you know, just don't always be satisfied. There is a level of being grateful and really uh, being appreciative of hitting your marks and hitting your goals in life, but keep going. Keep making new goals. Keep aiming higher for something new in life. That's a great one. Aim high. Okay, last one, Kevin. Your last dinner. Uh, it's a little morbid, I know, but it's your last dinner. We don't know what's happening tomorrow, but something's happening where this is your last meal. <laughs> so what is in front of you? What What is on the plate or plates for that matter? And I got to assume there's a beer in the glass, but 
if you could describe what that beer is, that would be fantastic. Well, the, you know, being from Cincinnati, Skyline Chili, uh, I'll have Skyline Coney's. Skyline Chili Cheese Dogs will be on there for sure, mixed in with uh, has to be some kind of Mexican. It has to be some guac, some enchiladas maybe. I'm huge. Yeah, I love Mexican. And then I'm going to have to have a, like a piece of pizza or something. So, I mean, I know this is my last, you know, meal. So whatever happens after, it's it's not going to be pretty anyway. So, but this is going to be like, yeah, I mean, I'm going to have enchiladas, some, you know, chips and salsa guac, slice of pizza, and Skyline cheese conies. I got to have the Skyline. Skyline chili is definitely a must as a Cincinnati. I love that. Was there in all, I mean, all the road trips, I mean, you guys were on the road so much playing baseball. Was there a town where there's just this hole in the wall, something I'm just, I, I'm trying to dig if there's this like secret place out there that you're like, oh man, I love going to this city because of that burger, piece of pizza or whatever it is. Yeah, we were so lucky. I mean, every city had something, right? Like, uh, one of the great parts of like New York was finding Clinton Street Baking Company, or is it Baking Co- Clinton Street Pancake? It might be Baking Company, but if you're ever in New York City, they have the best pancakes. Clinton Street, yeah, I think it is. It's like it's near uh, I don't know if it's Soho or right near Houston, but uh, the best pancakes you ever have. They were phenomenal, so that was always one. Anaheim was great, and Costa Mesa because Mastros was right across. The- oh yeah! Oh yeah! So I found out about Mastro's in Scottsdale when I lived there. And that anytime I get to Mastro's is like my, it's just bring back a lot of memories from playing, but it's my favorite restaurant. I guess we're getting, we're getting one here soon. Yeah. So yeah, there's one in San Jose, which I'm excited for. I, that place is fantastic. You got to strap on the feedback for that place. Cause it's, you're going to get so much food, but it's great. You better get that workout in yeah. before <laughs> you go there because it is going to be a great meal. But yeah, I mean, every place has something had something that we looked forward to. You know, there was like, yeah, Baltimore, you go, there was like great crab. Like, so you would get, you know, some of the crabs there. Um, it just depends. I mean, every city had something and it all depended on the location of the hotel. So if there was a good location at a hotel, you know, you had variety of things you could do. Uh, and then other different hotels that, you know, had good food within. So, but yeah, I mean, every city I had something, but you know, San Francisco was always great because my brother was there. So I got to go to his restaurant um, and some of the coffee shops that I loved. So in Seattle, too, kind of had that. So I think for me, every city had something. But, yeah, there was a couple cities that you're like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> we won't name them on the show. <laughs> we, Only a few. So, so I, you did not get to what was in the glass on that last dinner. Oh, yeah. So, uh I mean, I'll have to go. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm looking at the beer board right now, but the appeasement IPA is like a staple here now. So, you know, the appeasement IPA or jujitsu, I like hoppy beer, uh, even any pale ale. So, but uh, any, and like, yeah, so I'll, I'll say the appeasement IPA since that's that's probably one of our, our most popular beers. That's great. Thanks, Kevin. And, Thanks for the hour. I mean, I knew this conversation was going to be special just given your your history in the major leagues and now being an entrepreneur. And a lot of the listeners, frankly, glob on to connections like that where you can bring you know that sport over to over to entrepreneurship. So thank you again for your time. And I want to ask, is there anything for the listeners you'd like to leave motivational wise or just where to reach you or find you if uh, they have any questions? Yeah, no, this has been a great time. And uh, yeah, I mean, Lomabrew.com is, uh, you know, to check out for the Loma Brewing Company, Loma-Coffee.com. You can order retail bags on there. Go check it out. Uh, very lucky to have a great roaster and green buyer at Loma Coffee. It's in Portland, Oregon. If you live in Portland, Oregon, come stop by the shop. But yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing in life is, uh, you know, you're never out. No matter what you do in life, you're never out. There's always something new. And there's always something there, but find something, you know, it's so easy to the cliche of find something you do and you'll never work a day in your life. But it's true. You're never going to have the perfect job, but there's a lot of great jobs out there. And uh, just keep that in mind that, you know, when you're struggling in life, no matter what, you know, whether you be on top or you're kind of in the beginning stages of work, that there's always a better day ahead of you. And you just got to find that way. It might not be at that place. It might be at another business, but, uh, when you're present and you're in the moment, be the best you can be at your job, no matter what you do, because 
it reflects on your next job. Because what you do in your current situation, you do it to the best of your ability every day. There's only so much things that people can say about you wrong that, that are not accurate. And so I think that's the best thing is be in the moment, do the best you can in life. And, uh, you know, half of it's just showing up. Great way to end it, Kevin. Really appreciate your time and best of luck with you and Loma Brewing. Thanks, Ron. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kevin Euclid. You can find Kevin on LinkedIn, Instagram, but most important, at the Loma Brewing Company website, which is www.lomabrew.com. And you can find me at my website, ramizade.com. That's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and I hope you all learned something interesting.